from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program presenting biographical interviews of people who have chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life. Today I'm playing a telephone interview with George Lord. George is a chiropractor who employs other alternative methods of healing, including a method called body talk. George describes the mystical art of body talk in which the soul communicates the state of one's being. I started the interview by asking George where he grew up. And what was it like growing up there? Until I went away to, to boarding school, I grew up in New Haven, Connecticut. Well, for a good chunk of my young life, um, we were living in or around Yale because uh, Dad was a professor there, and he, for a time he was a master of one of the residential colleges there. We were actually living at Trumbull College on the day that uh, Kennedy was shot. So that's one of the things that, that I remember about being there. You know, of course, there was a lot of intellectual stuff going around. It was interesting being there when I met a man named uh, Firuz Kazemzada, as he was introduced to me, who practically shared an office with my father. I had never seen or heard a last name like that. Uh, To me, he kind of sounded and looked Russian. Um, I found out later that he was, and I also found out much later that he was um, a prominent member of the Baha'i faith, but uh, that's, that's a different story. Yeah, so he was a professor at that same college, so that, that turned out to be important later on in my life. What was religious life like growing up? Um, religious life growing up, for a time it culminated in my thinking that I was an atheist, we went to the occasional uh, Episcopal service. Um, we also went to a number of um, of services at Battelle Chapel at Yale when the uh, much talked about the let's see was it William Sloan Coffin? I think that was his name. You know, he was the Reverend Sloan in Doonesbury, but he was a prominent anti-war activist, and he preached a lot about that. He was particularly well known. Also, my God, one of my godfathers was the late Paul Moore, who became uh, the Episcopal Bishop of New York City. A lot of it was very sort of intellectually based, politically based, which was fine as far as it went, I suppose. But, you know, I guess I had my own spiritual stirrings, but it took a while to sort of fight through that and say, well, you know, I don't really accept this on the other hand. You know, at some point I realized that I couldn't reject the idea of God, but that was some years down the pike, mm. I guess, while I was officially still in college. So what were your interests growing up? You know, at a certain point, I really got very interested in language. For a while, my Latin and French teachers were trying to sort of bounce these things off me, or try, tried to get them to sort of take root in me, and they would bounce off and then one day I sort of started getting French, and on another day I started getting Latin. 
And um, on another day, I started getting math. Um, all of those things really became very interesting to me. And I, I really, oh, I, one of the things that really sort of inclined me toward languages is that James Bond spoke French, German, and maybe some Italian and some Russian or something. So I wanted to be like him. And my dad also could at least read German, Greek, Latin, and French. And so I wanted to be like him, too. So I I didn't study all of those languages, but I ended up studying most of them in, to, to some extent. Anyway, so I was very interested in language, and that might have been partly because I I felt so kind of ill at ease with a lot of other people. But I was thinking, well, this is something, you know, a way that I can communicate that you can't communicate, you know. Mm-hmm. But language continues to be one of my, my really big interests, and Unfortunately, I haven't really kept my math up, but <laughs> one doesn't speak math as much. So, uh, But the French turned out to be much more useful than I ever thought it would be because some of the top osteopaths that I study with are actually French. I'm, I'm going to be collaborating with them in, in having some of their books translated into English. And I've, I've done some translating for the Baha'i Faith on a very sort of simple level. Uh, out of Spanish into into not very complicated French. I, I did that when I lived in Haiti. Other interests, I was interested in foreign countries. We traveled to foreign countries sometimes, especially France and England. And I sort of had a passing interest in science, but not strong enough to, to go and really try and do anything with it. Um, I was very interested in things like racial justice. What did you do after high school? I went to my safety school which was Washington University in St. Louis. And I'm really glad that I didn't get accepted by a college on the East Coast. You know, all the other colleges I applied to were on the East Coast. Anyway, it was interesting to go to St. Louis and sort of be reminded that there was a whole big country out there. And uh, another interesting thing about Washington U was the fact that there were so many Jewish students there. It just continued to sort of open up vistas about other people, I suppose. Um, But it was in St. Louis that I really started finding out about the Baha'i Faith. I had a restaurant in St. Louis. This was before I actually graduated from college. But I had kind of dropped out, and I was owning this restaurant. And one day, Baha'is started just swarming into the place. And it turned out that there there was a big conference that was happening in St. Louis. And uh, it was during that conference from a news article that someone wrote about these these amazing Baha'is that I found out that Firuz Kazemzadeh was an important Baha'i. You knew Firuz Kazemzadeh before? Uh, when, yeah, because he you was were, Yale. Yeah, yeah, so he was he had a relationship I, with your father. Right. I didn't know him well, but I, you know, I saw him every once in a while. We were introduced, and I saw his name card you know, by his office, which was right next to my dad's office. The Baha'is really got me interested because by this point, I had re-embraced the idea of God. And most of the people working at my restaurant were very self-consciously spiritual. You know, we, we used a lot of sort of yogic language and stuff like that. You know, a lot of us went to yoga class in the mornings and stuff. And that really kept me going, you know, during those long days of work. But that didn't mean that we were particularly efficient. 
or the, our service was all that good. The restaurant was pretty good, but the service was pretty horrible, especially when all these Baha'is started, you know, swarming in during lunch. You know, it would take them two hours sometimes to get their lunch and go. But they were still just as kind and happy and respectful, you know, when they left as, as when they had come in. One of the things that really struck me was this this was a time when there was a lot of racial tension. And I had been asking myself or wondering where all the spiritual black people were. You know, and it didn't really occur to me that you know, a lot of them were in the black churches. That just sort of went right over my head. But anyway, that there were a large number of black people among all these Baha'is and, of course, a good number of Persians. And it was really a revelation to me to see that this group of people got along so well to the point where they didn't, you know, it, it was almost strange because it seemed like they should have, they should have known that there should be more tension between them, you know, because that's just the way things were between people. But it wasn't the way things were between the Baha'is. And they, they also, they had a kind of a dignity in their speech, which really struck me as a, as the son of an English professor and a former, or I guess I was still a French major at that point, there was just something very, that really grabbed me and a spirituality that was not, that did not vaunt itself, you know? Um, so all of these things really attracted me. And uh, then we ran out of food on the night that there was a public meeting. So I went to the public meeting. So I think God set his hook pretty well that night. And then it took me a few weeks, a few months rather, to get reeled in. That's that's when it really started being part of my awareness. You know, the Baha'i faith prior to that had been just vaguely, you know, on my radar screen. It was interesting that you said that you had been transitioning from not believing to God to believing to God. Could you describe that for me? Yeah. Being the college student that I was, what's on people's minds when they're in college, right? Sex. <laughs> Um, you can edit that out, but but anyway, it, there are too many things in creation work together or fit together in in just amazing ways, and that it just it was so unlikely to have come about through chance that that I just I, I got to the point where I I discarded the possibility that it was chance anymore. Plus, I think I was I was just spiritually hungry, and um, all the politics and all my convictions about different things weren't weren't enough to sustain me and nor nor was what people were telling me in the church that I had recently joined I found it very interesting to read about various religions and that was sort of what kept me sane you know it, the the people at the sort of born again presbyterian church that that I had joined which my yoga teacher actually urged me to attend <laughs> anyway, they, they were very spiritual, but they really, I think they would have been much happier if I had not been interested in in other messages besides what they were putting out. But I couldn't help it. You know, I was interested in, in Sikhism and in Hinduism and Buddhism and, and all kinds of things, and I just couldn't not be. And then, you know, so another thing about the Baha'i faith coming along was, hey, these people all accept these things as a given. Wow. But even that wasn't quite what, you know, what ultimately persuaded me that I had to be a Baha'i. Well, two things. One, 
when you say it was a given that Baha'is accepted Hinduism and Buddhism and so on, can you explain what you're referring to? Yeah, well, I don't remember exactly what conversation it was, but early on, you know, I, I guess I was kind of confrontational, you know, when it came to my beliefs. And so if someone would try and tell me about Jesus, I'd say, well, fine, but what do you think about Buddha, you know, or something like that? Because I had, I had come to my usual sort of unquestioning acceptance of the idea that I was right, that Buddha must be true, you know, and that, that something basic about Hinduism must be true. And so I would kind of use that to, um, to, to test the people who wanted to tell me about, you know, their version of Christianity or whatever. And so I don't remember exactly how it happened, but um, I don't know whether the Baha'is just sort of preempted all that by saying that they accepted all the manifestations of God or whether whether it was in response to, to something like that that I was saying. Now, you said, but that wasn't what that uh, convinced you to become a Baha'i. What was it that convinced you to become a Baha'i? Well, I started going to Baha'i firesides, and the little old black lady and... And a young black lady, who, little old black lady who lived in the house where I went to Firesides. Firesides um, being a... Oh, sorry. Yeah, it's a, an informational gathering that is hosted by Baha'is for, for non-Baha'is who are interested in finding out more about the Baha'i faith. Anyway, so I, I went to the house of this lady in North St. Louis, and either she or this, this young woman about my age, who was whom I found quite attractive for, for quite a while... One of them, or both of them, gave me a couple of Baha'i books. And one of them was Peace in the Night by William Sears, which I highly recommend to anybody who is interested in biblical prophecy or who might be. Um, and it's still in print. It's still easy to get. You know, Thief in the Night by William Sears. Anyway, I was reading uh, this book one day. And as I had been reading the book, I became more and more convinced that, in fact, Christ had returned, and that he had returned in a new name, and the name was Baha'u'llah, the glory of God. And Baha'u'llah is, as you well know, the main prophet of the Baha'i faith. Well, Mr. Sears was wise enough to put in a quotation from the New Testament, and I don't remember where it is, but Jesus Jesus said, when I return, you have to follow me. Now, obviously, that's a, uh, a paraphrase. But I said, okay, well, that's, that's the last thing. I don't know what this is going to mean for me personally, but I can no longer call myself a Christian if I don't all, also call myself a Baha'i. So that's settled. So being a Baha'i is not a bed of roses. Like, you know, being, being a sincere member of any religion is going to bring its tests at times. And being a Baha'i does so too. But that was what, what finally did it for me. After you became a Baha'i, what happened to your life? Fortunately for me, I didn't have a lot of the tests. I didn't have to give up a lot of the things that that a lot of people typically had to give up in becoming Baha'is because I had I had recently decided that I didn't want to drink that I didn't want to use marijuana or anything like that, and that I didn't want to engage in sex outside of marriage, and I was not married. But all of those things, you know, could have been tests for me a year or two before, but none of them was at the time. And it 
you know, the sort of the prohibitions on those things all made sense to me at the time. So that was easy. So that I didn't change in that regard. One thing I guess I tried to do was to, of course, I started praying every day. I started reading the Baha'i writings more than I had before. I, of course, as a, as a seeker, I had read some of them. I think I tried to become less judgmental, which was a big challenge for me. You know, that that's kind of an ongoing fight. You know, one of the things about being a Baha'i is that it gives you such a perspective in which to see everything that goes on in the world. And so I think a, a big difference for me was was seeing things in this interconnected perspective. But it took me a lot of deepening to get to the point of studying the Baha'i the Baha'i writings, to get to the point where I, I'd sort of had a a firm enough framework, you know, that, that I could really make sense of things. You know, Baha'u'llah says, immerse yourself in the ocean of my words. I mean, of course, I wanted to share this with people, and then, you know, so I'd tell them people from the Baha'i, you know, or, or my version of the Baha'i faith, and, and they'd say, well, you know, why do you believe that, or but what about this and that and this and that? And, of course, you know, if you try to teach something to someone and they challenge you, what do you do? You need to go back to the books and try and understand it better and so forth. And that was a, an ongoing process, too. Mm. But to, to this day, 30-something years later, it's, you know, it's, it's my primary guiding light, I suppose. It's a source of comfort, you know, in, in some pretty difficult times. And what direction did your life go after you became a Baha'i? Well, it, it went to the southeast. <laughs> Well, not long after I became a Baha'i, I left St. Louis and went to the Atlanta area to attend chiropractic college. You know, and I, I thought one of the things that I had been wanting to do, which I might well have gotten into if I hadn't been a Baha'i, because I was already interested in this stuff, but I, I liked the results I was getting from yoga. And then I discovered chiropractic, and I... I thought, aha, you know, you can sort of turn people on to the energy that's in themselves through chiropractic a lot more quickly and easily than you can through yoga. And most of the chiropractors I knew also made a really good living, which I haven't really followed in the footsteps of, unfortunately, but it, it was a really interesting thing to me. You know, you can sort of turn on the power with chiropractic. So for various reasons, I chose a chiropractic college, which had just barely opened, practically. And that was in Marietta, Georgia. And that's the thing that first took me to the south. Instead of going to chiropractic college in St. Louis, there, there is one there. But I came to Georgia, and I became a southerner uh, in a certain sense. Although I'll always be a New Englander in another sense. You know, I continued to be really active in, in the faith. It was... I don't want to bore you with a long story about my first trip to Georgia, but once I finally decided to take a bus to Marietta from the airport, I had been given a couple of numbers of Baha'is, and I called one of the numbers, and this nice lady answered and asked me where I was staying, and I told her, and she said, well, you're about 200 yards from our house. There were just several things about that trip, including finding out that some Baha'is lived 200 yards from where I was staying that were absolutely unmistakable signs that I should move to Georgia. So that's what I did. Subsequently, I I moved back to Connecticut for a while, and I also lived in Haiti for a while. 
Now, what, uh, took, what took you to Haiti? Well, I guess wanting to use my French, wanting to expose my kids to life in a different country, you know, that worked out well because I was able to, I was asked to, to translate some of these materials, some of the first Ruhi materials from Spanish into French. Mm-hmm. My Spanish wasn't very good, but I got to where I could have a conversation in Spanish about the faith and, and basically about nothing else <laughs> for a time. But yeah. that's a lot of what I did in Haiti. I, I took care of my family, I practiced chiropractic, and I, I translated Ruby books from Spanish into French. I learned Haitian Creole, of course, and still use I mean, I still know it some, but I don't use it very much. So you returned to the United States, and what happened then? Well, I was living in southeastern Connecticut. And what was I doing? I didn't have a chiropractic license in Connecticut or Rhode Island. So that kind of got put on the back burner. And I translated for some, or interpreted for, in some court cases involving Haitians. I edited a couple of books. I edited a couple of books that, Nat Rutstein, yeah, I, I edited a couple of his books. I um, did some other editing. I think I did some other translating, though I don't remember. But while I was still there, I started well, let's see, I'm going to get this wrong. I, 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 somewhere in there, I think I started studying some more um, healing things. And after a while, moved back to Georgia and started practicing chiropractic again. I don't really call it chiropractic anymore, but that's what my license is in. So you know, I have to call myself a chiropractor because I am. And if I weren't one, I wouldn't have permission to touch people. So, right. So it's important. But you referred to another practice that that you do. Yeah, yeah. It might take a while to enumerate all the things that I've actually studied, Warren, but I've studied applied kinesiology, craniosacral therapy, somato-emotional release, visceral manipulation, lymph drainage therapy, manual lymph drainage, and body talk. And a lot of those things I've studied really, you know, in, in, at fairly great length. Most of the editing and, and translating I do these days has to do with some of those subjects. So you incorporated those various healing practices into your chiropractic work? Right. Well, it sort of flows from one, from one realm to, to another. During any given treatment, I might use any of those things or a mixture of them. Fortunately, with body talk, you have a tool whereby... There's kind of like a conference between your soul and your patient's soul, if, if that's the understanding that you have. And so you find out what is going to be the top priority for the two of us to work on today. You know, and if they went to somebody else, probably something else would be a priority because that other practitioner would have other strengths. You have this kind of flow of energy to, to matter. And as a Baha'i, that makes perfect sense to me. Because we believe so much in spiritual causes, at least you know my reading of the Baha'i writings leads me to to believe a lot in spiritual causes, you know. And so, so my my take on things is that the physical body and its functions are kind of expressions of something that happens on this, if you will, on the spiritual level. And sometimes you can work on the energy. And it's a whole lot easier to work on the energy if you know how to do it. 
and influence the physical processes. You know, instead of trying to trying to push a bone somewhere that it doesn't want to go. You know, maybe there's something you can do energetically or something you can do with soft tissue or whatever, you know, that is going to make that bone, going to pull that bone back into alignment and keep it there instead of, okay, we're going to have to adjust this bone five times this week and five times next week and then three times a week after and three times a week after that. And ultimately, we'll get to where I only have to adjust it every couple weeks. Won't that be good? <laughs> you know, so, well, that's fine. You know, and people people with that approach tend to get good results. That does not appeal to me, though. And if if it turns out that you can find the kind of spiritual thing or the 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 non-material thing, you know, the energetic thing that can be balanced, then there's a lot less physical balancing that needs to be done. Do you have to find the patient that's receptive to this approach? When you, I, yeah, unfortunately, I I don't have a license to drag people in off the street, as much <laughs> as I wish I did. Yeah, that that's always a bit of a challenge, you know, because one of my biggest challenges is figuring out what to say about this stuff. Even even right now, you know, in talking with you, and you're a fellow Baha'i, and you're an intelligent guy, and you think a lot about things. So I find it pretty easy to to say what I'm saying to you, but I don't know. You know, I don't know how it's coming across. So I'm wondering if you could describe what approach would you take with a particular patient who is receptive to the idea of this approach to healing? I just assume, you know, that, that if we get to the point that they're lying down on my treatment table, that at least they're receptive enough to, to give it a try. And so I just say, okay, I'm going to be asking your body yes and no questions. In body talk, the main way we do this is, you know, we just have this agreement between what we call my innate wisdom and your innate wisdom. The term comes from chiropractic. Since the founder of body talk is a chiropractor, he was perfectly happy to adopt the terminology into body talk. But we're going to have this conversation. And to make sure that I'm getting the information correctly, I'm going to ask yes or no questions of your body from time to time. And the way I'm going to ask these questions is by tugging on your arm here. And you don't have to resist or do anything like that. You can just, actually, you can be asleep. If I feel more resistance when I ask the question and tug on your arm, that's going to be a no. If I feel less resistance, that'll be a yes. And I might be using this chart here, which will guide me to what part of what system or what body part or what concept is going to be most useful in this treatment today. You know, obviously this is radio, I can't show you this chart, but it's it's a really, really good chart. It allows you to sort of jump to to more or less specific areas of function or areas of the body. For instance, you know, the, the reason it's called body talk is that it has to do with communication between parts of the body. So, for instance, if the heart is not in good communication with the liver, your health is not going to be as good as if they were in good communication. And by the way, I found something from Abdul Baha, the son of Baha'u'llah, that that really fits fits that very well. Would you like to read what it is? Yes. Should anyone suppose that man is but a part of the world of nature, and he being endowed with these perfections these being but manifestations of the world of nature 
and thus nature is the originator of these perfections and is not derived therefrom, to him we make reply and say, the part dependeth upon the whole. The part cannot possess perfections whereof the whole is deprived. And these realities of things, though in the utmost diversity, are yet intimately connected one with the other. For these diverse realities and all unifying agency is needed that shall link them all one to the other. For instance, this is where it gets good for body talkers. For instance, the various organs and members, the parts and elements that constitute the body of man, though at variance, are yet all connected one with the other by that all-unifying agency known as the human soul that causes them to function in perfect harmony and with absolute regularity, thus making the continuation of life possible. And he goes on talking about how, how all these body parts need to be in communication and harmony, and it's the soul that does that. Mm. So anyway, that that is in perfect harmony with the theory of body talk. Everything has to be in communication. Everything needs to be in harmony with everything else in order for health to be maximized. Mm. And by now, you know, I I very often get a, a sense of, wait a second, it feels like the liver is to, or the left kidney or something is just totally, almost totally oblivious of what's going on in the rest of the body, and we need to kind of reconnect it. That's an extreme kind of sense, but it does happen sometimes. And, you know, people, you do some body talk and cause that reconnection to happen. You heal that estrangement and uh, the person says, oh, wow, you know, that feels that feels really different. That feels so much better. I feel so light. Usually my patients, if they've had a good treatment, they say, I really feel light. Mm. I say, Great. George, what kind of treat, a treatment do you apply to get one organ to be engaged into another? Well, the most simple kind of body talk has to do with, you know, you find out what's, what's involved, what needs to be reconnected, and so forth. And if it's, if it's one of these very simple things, like the left kidney needs to be communicating better with the liver or the bladder or something, then... I might tell my pet or ask my patient, okay, just put your left hand right here and that's over the left kidney and that's just going to represent the kidney and, and sort of get its attention. And then I'm going to put my, my hand over your liver over here and with my other hand I'm going to tap on your head and that gets the brain working on the issue of the communication between those two. And then I tap over your heart and that kind of seals it. Mm-hmm. So it's it's very gentle, you know, it's no sort of heavy shoving or anything like that by me. But sometimes I can sort of feel that connection being reestablished. And depending on how tuned into their own bodies they are, my patients can often feel it too, but sometimes they don't. What state of mind do you need to be or what state of soul do you need to be in order to be able to practice oh, this? That's a great question and it's absolutely key that's a really really good question during these sessions you know if i'm if i'm going to be much use i have to have more than a good working knowledge of anatomy and a good theoretical knowledge of body talk i really have to be sort of concentrating and and present present for the session if i'm thinking about my stock portfolio 
you know, while I'm treating someone, they're not going to get anything out of it. I really have to be there and I have to kind of have the attitude of of holding space for them, of being maybe being an observer of what's going on, but I am definitely there for them during that session and that's that's where I am and my mind isn't any place else. It's a kind of love, it's a kind of directed love, or or you could think of it as a very specific kind of prayer, you know. Um, because actually, this just like prayer, this can be done up close or it can be done at a distance. And both are very effective, mm. up close and at a distance. Mm. Um, Reiki also can be done at a distance. That's That's another kind of healing, energetic healing modality, which I don't use, but I do respect it. But yeah, that concentration is absolutely essential. And if I'm, you know, thinking of a dozen things, then they're just not going to get much out of the treatment. Have you had any experience of being able to heal something fairly serious using this technique? Well, I'm not the one that does the healing, but I have had patients who had quite serious things. I went through a number of the old testimonials that I had because I decided to to put them into a form where I could, you know, turn it all into a PDF and stuff. And turns out a lot of them had had migraines, which I had forgotten about. Oh, there there were a number of of really difficult conditions, conditions that were either bothersome and they had been to, to many different people and had never been able to get it fixed or pains that would just persist and persist or uh, sometimes more serious things than that. I don't want to talk about really serious things partly because, you know, I don't want to take excess credit and there are other reasons. Like, I, I'm not aware of ever treating anybody who had a serious form of, of cancer who got better. So I'm not I'm not claiming to have the cure for for everything, but people have, have definitely gotten better from a large array of conditions. You know, menstrual issues and breathing problems. I really like working on breathing problems because the, the results are so immediately apparent. You know, if you have a, a problem with the way your bones are, are forming or something, you might not know that you're doing better for, for months after. If you have a problem breathing and you immediately start breathing better, then, I mean, you notice that. I have a friend who's now a body talk instructor, and she said that she had had cysts, fluid-filled cysts in her breasts for a long time, and she kept going to the doctors and said, oh, well, you know, it's nothing. We'll just just stick a needle in every once in a while and drain them, you know, no problem. Okay, well, that's one approach. I found out that her her lymph, the tendency of her lymph flow was backwards around there, and we just fixed that, and she said she never had that happen again. It it wasn't uh, malignant, but it certainly was annoying. It's it's all kinds of things. I mean, as I heard some MD say uh, once upon a time, I I try and uh, treat the skin and its contents. I'm pretty open to a wide range of things. Oh, one thing that all body talkers do at the beginning of a session is they they actually ask specifically if they have permission to treat, not just, you know, sign permission on their forms, but permission from innate. And sometimes, every once in a while, you'll get, no, you don't have permission. This person needs to go to somebody else. You know, but assuming that I do get permission, 
you know, I assume that if I get permission that I will also be given the tools to actually help this person, you know, so I'm not going to be wasting their time and money. Mm. You know, if I have permission to treat, then, then I either already have the tools or I'll be able to figure something out, mm. um, which is fun because it means that no two sessions are, are alike, you know. Yeah. Okay, we have a session today. I wonder what, where it's going to go. You know, people fairly often come to me and they have the same symptom bilaterally, you know, like the same kind of pain in both sides of their shoulders to either side of their neck. And sometimes it can be caused by a totally different cause, but, you know, produce the exact same symptom. And there was something else that Baha'u'llah said about the soul, if you're interested. Sure. He said that a sick person showeth signs of weakness is due to the hindrances that interpose themselves between his soul and his body. For the soul itself remaineth unaffected by any bodily ailments. So if you say that to a chiropractor, the chiropractor will probably say, oh yes, you know, that's where the nerves pass between the vertebrae. Because the brain is part of the circuit. The soul seems to connect to the brain. The brain connects to the rest of the body. And indeed, if you have spinal subluxations, that will cause one of these hindrances that Baha'u'llah is talking about. However, there are many, many other kinds of hindrances that can happen too. It can be an emotional condition. It can be toxicity. It can be any number of things. It can be the nerves or the blood flow or something are, are interfered with by a muscle or by, by something else. In any case, it's a hindrance that has been interposed between the person's soul and the person's body. So it's possible that the, the body tells you that the issue is an emotional one rather than a physical one? Yeah, because emotional, emotional problems will very often manifest as physical problems, too. For instance, a large number of people have tightness, you know, at the, the base of their neck, you know, or in the top of their shoulders. And very often that has to do with it can have mechanical causes, but it very often has emotional causes. And according to, to John Veltheim, the founder of, of Body Talk, shoulder problems very often have to do with feeling overburdened by responsibility, um, having to shoulder too many responsibilities. So, you know, we even have that in the language. So if you can find out how to put those responsibilities into, into perspective, you know, or if you can discover that there's a, uh, an old emotion that's stuck somewhere in the tissues, and in body talk there's a brilliant way of just clearing, physically clearing emotions out of, out of tissues, then life gets a whole lot easier. It's as though the friction coefficient goes way down. So you don't have to spend nearly so much of your energy kind of struggling against yourself, you know, or against your emotional stresses and stuff like that. And, uh, so it's, it's available for you to, to do something useful. Body talk, it appears to be very low-tech because we don't use any, any outward machines, but it's actually very high-tech because it's a kind of computer program that is actually run by your brain. And how long have you been practicing this? Oh, that's another good question. Something like 10 years. 
But, you know, in my particular practice, it gets mixed up with a lot of things that are that are consistent with body talk but are not necessarily part of it, like things that I learned from the osteopath and so on. You know, one of the great things about it is it'll either get, it'll either improve things or it will do nothing. And there are studies that have shown that. You know, it's either going to get your brain involved on a solution for what's going on with you, or your brain will just sort of say, ho hum, you know, he, he doesn't get what he's doing and we're not going to do anything. So, so it'll either help or won't do anything. Yeah which is a whole lot better than surgery. Now, of course, you know, that isn't to say that there's never that surgery is never needed. It often it sometimes is, but uh, probably not nearly as often as it is currently done. So it seems like you integrate other techniques in addition to body talk like osteopath techniques. Yeah. But, well, you know, it's kind of a tricky thing because the way osteopathy is practiced in America is it's a lot like just being a medical doctor, but adding in a little bit of manipulation. Osteopathy in France and other countries, Britain, Canada, I think, it's much more like chiropractic. It's much more hands-on and much less medical. But there are legal reasons to say, I'm trained by osteopaths, but I am not. You know, I'm not an osteopath, and these are these are manual therapies that were developed by osteopaths, but it's not practicing osteopathy. So I enjoy doing what I'm doing because I think that it it fits with the Baha'i idea. Of there's a validity to both material means and sort of spiritual means, if you will, and they they work very well together if you know how to uh, how to deal with them all at once. You know, it's an ongoing exploration. I hope you enjoyed that interview with George Lord, a chiropractor who has employed other alternative methods of healing, including a method called body talk, in which the soul communicates the state of one's being. You can find this interview and other interviews at www.abahaiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. Complain about nothing and life going that way. The attitudes that 
I can't do nothing about And very happy with just breathing in and out The ones that when you say let's go make a difference They'll say nah that's okay So I don't waste time on the trip side Cause I do know the real on the flip side And I'm crystal clear every day That's why I
When righteousness is weak and faints, and unrighteousness exalts in pride, then my spirit arises on earth. For the salvation of those who are good, for the destruction of evil in men, for the fulfillment of the kingdom of righteousness, I come to this world from age to age. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice, from henceforth, even forever. of the religion of the Arabian and the overthrow of the kingdom of Iran and the degradation of the followers of my religion, a descendant of the Iranian kings will be raised up as a prophet. shall I be the last. In due time, another Buddha will arise in the world, a holy one, a supremely enlightened one, endowed with wisdom in conduct, auspicious, knowing the universe, an incomparable leader of men, a master of angels and mortals. He will reveal to you the same eternal truths which I have taught you. He will preach his religion, glorious at the goal, in the spirit and in the letter. He will proclaim a religious life, holy, perfect, and pure, such as I now proclaim. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. 
For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, God says, God is the light of the heavens and the earth. His light is like a niche in which is a lamp, the lamp encased in glass, the glass as it were a brilliant star, lit from a blessed tree, an olive, of neither the east nor of the west, whose oil is beginning to burst into light, though no fire has touched it. Light upon light, God guideth whomsoever he willeth to his light, and of all things God is knowing. Side by side 
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.